You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk. We turn now to the Word of God, and we're reading from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians, chapter 1, and beginning to read at verse 15. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the holy and inerrant word of God. And we thank him and we pray that his word may be to our glory and praise. Let's pray together. Living, loving God, we thank you for our creation, for our preservation, and for all the blessings of this life, for all the good things we've received from you from your very hands. We thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour, our Redeemer. We thank you that you have called us to life in him by his blood shed upon the cross in our place. And so, living God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we again thank you that you are a Father who loves us, a Son who has died for us, and a Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so we say, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be forever. Amen. <coughs> it gives me great pleasure tonight to Welcome, Angus Maclay. Um, great delight to have you with us, Angus, tonight. And uh, we hope you feel at home here. And we look forward very much to what you've got to say. Thank you very much indeed, John. Thank you. Thank you very much for your uh, very warm welcome. I've uh, been very well looked after today already. Very grateful for that. Um, and so uh, we come now to this uh, 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 subject of, uh, of common grace. Now... Uh, Just a few words of introduction before uh, I get uh, to my subject. Uh, The one is the the danger of uh, thinking aloud when Colin Hart is around because it was many, many years ago that we had a conversation about 
common grace and the, uh, uh, the lack of any sort of public teaching uh, about this subject. And uh, the conclusion of our conversation from my angle was that uh, Colin ought to do some research and writing on the subject. Uh, obviously, the uh, conclusion from his angle was that he would invite Angus to do a talk on it. There we go. Uh, in doing a little bit of research on it, I then discovered to my horror that the doctrine of common grace in 1924 led to a whole denomination splitting asunder in the, uh, in the States. So um, uh, if that's what this doctrine can do, um, and just aware of all the different denominations uh, uh, here tonight, I just dread to think the impact of this talk. So uh, um, that really is a... Uh, 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 you know, a great difficulty that has been uh, laid upon me. But uh, in all seriousness, it's an important subject that we need to grapple with. Uh, some folk uh, see no place for common grace whatsoever because, uh, I guess, the doctrine of total depravity, the, uh, the world is such a, an evil, clearly such a, a fallen place, that uh, it needs the, uh, the doctrine of saving grace and uh, that is, you know, the be-all and the end-all. And yes, of course it is in all sorts of ways. But some folks so uh, 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 are committed to those doctrines that there is just not an inch for anything to come between uh, the fall and the doctrine of saving grace. And yet others would suggest that there is a place for common grace with uh, God's uh, goodness, as it were, being shed abroad uh, across the world, even to those who are uh, fallen, even to uh, those who are uh, turning a, a away from him day by day. And I guess it's, it's that sort of issue that needs to be teased out. And uh, I read an article recently on a completely different subject, um, and it was described as an essay, an essay in the proper sense of the word. Uh, an essay being an attempt to look at a subject, to open it up. And, and I see what I'm doing tonight as very much uh, an essay, trying to open this subject up, uh, out, and uh, certainly going to be open to, to questions at the end, so you might want to, uh, to think about things uh, as we go through. Because uh, certainly in my research, I found very little uh, on the subject. I found a, a helpful chapter in uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, uh, I also found uh, a helpful article in the Westminster Theological Journal of November 1942 by John Murray. But uh, other than that, uh, I found a few sort of passing references here, there, and, uh, and places like that. But uh, in terms of substantial thinking on this subject, uh, I was... Uh, uh, often left floundering. Now, I'm sure some of you, one of you is going to come up to me and says, there's this wonderful book, and it's uh, got it all unpacked. Well, uh, uh, do let me know at the end, and I'll gladly jot it down. Well, what I intend to do tonight is uh, uh, to do something in terms of just building a case for looking at the subject of common grace. It's rather like a single jigsaw piece can be described, you can describe the, uh, uh, the appearance of it, you can describe uh, what it actually looks like, uh, but it's most helpful to actually place it in context with the other pieces around. 
Uh, You get a more complete view of its purpose, role and function. And in a sense, that is what I'm attempting to do uh, in this lecture. I'm wanting to place the jigsaw piece of common grace within a, a slightly wider framework to help us appreciate its significance. And there are going to be uh, six points as we go through, six clear points, and I hope that they will help us as we uh, grapple with this uh, important subject. So let's get underway, and uh, our first heading is the person of Christ. The person of Christ. Now, God reveals himself in three persons, both as creator and redeemer. And all the three persons of the Trinity are involved in both creation and redemption. And the Father is revealed by the Spirit uh, through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all are involved continuously uh, within that role. We need to have a, a robust Trinitarian theology all the time. As we come to a passage, though, uh, such as the reading we had, Colossians chapter 1, and verses 15 to 20, notice the way in which Paul especially thrusts forward the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this very important passage, he highlights the dual role that the Lord Jesus Christ continually has. He is the firstborn over all creation, chapter 1, verse 15, And he is also the firstborn from among the dead, verse 18. He is the head of creation, verses 15 to 17, the one in charge of it. And he is the head of the new creation, the church, in verses 18 to 20. So as head of creation, we read that everything, absolutely everything in the world, in the cosmos... Absolutely everything was made by him and for him, and in him it all holds together. And we've got to give uh, due uh, cognizance to every single uh, tiny phrase within that uh, uh, formula there. By him, for him, in him. And then when we come to the uh, being head of the new creation, well, it is formed through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through that blood is the work of reconciliation that brings us into the new creation. Now, of course, this will be a very familiar picture to us of Christ's lordship over all things, creation, new creation. There is ultimately no secular, sacred divide because nothing is outside his control or his influence. There is no ultimate dualism within our universe. Christ is the Lord over all. And that has two consequences for our subject tonight, still under this first heading. The first one is that as we recognize the Lordship of Christ over both creation and new creation, it makes common grace a possibility. It's not just that Christ is working within the church, within this sphere, but he is working within the church, within the whole of everything that has been made. 
And that is seen, for example, uh, in his providential ordering of all things and expressed in all sorts of ways uh, in his kindness. And indeed, the, the doctrines of common grace and pr- his uh, uh, providence, that there is enormous overlap. It depends how you uh, define uh, these various uh, doctrines, but there's an enormous overlap there. So, for example, uh, these will be very familiar verses to any of you who have looked at this subject. Matthew 5 and verse 45 He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. Or, for example, the Apostle Paul speaking in Acts 14 and verse 17. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you, these are ungodly people, giving you rain from heaven and crops in the seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So that's our first consequence in this uh, first main point. Recognizing the lordship of Christ over creation and new creation makes common grace a possibility. God's uh, benevolence over all creation. But there is a, a second consequence, which I, uh, I think that we, we ought to mention as well. And that is, whenever we see aspects of God's kindness, God's common grace, let us remind ourselves of a passage such as Colossians chapter 1 and see it, amongst other things, as the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, sometimes common grace can uh, be given and described in uh, terms uh, uh, such as it's like a, a, a very free-floating idea, almost like a sort of hot air balloon, which is vaguely linked to some sort of natural or moral sort of law. Whereas actually, it is something that is personally dispensed by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's personally dispensed by God the Trinity. So whenever we think about common grace, let us fix it in to Christ and the work of the Trinity rather than just as uh, some uh, naturally occurring thing. So that is our, our f- starting point, our foundation stone. We're going to set common the doctrine of common grace in a Trinitarian and especially a Christological framework. Let's move on to our second heading. And our second heading is the character of God or or the character of Christ. You see, we've already seen that he is both creator and redeemer. And uh, what is he like? Whenever we ask that question, uh, how, uh, how can we understand something of God's nature? Well, we are trying to describe something of uh, the uh, innate character of God. We are led to view, as it were, the glory of God. Because the glory of God is a term that, as it were, tries to capture all that is uh, wonderful uh, and good 
and special and distinct about God the Holy Trinity. So, what is his glory? Well, how can we describe it? And when we come to the New Testament and look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see, for example, uh, this very familiar phrase uh, in John chapter 1 and verse 14. The word, uh, obviously referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that little formula about being full of overflowing grace and truth, as it were, is a shorthand to somehow encapsulate the true glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, his uh, 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 goodness which flows out to those who do not deserve it, his kindness, his benevolence, and truth, uh, his faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to his character, his faithfulness to his name, uh, its truth, its, its justice, uh, its uh, uh, all these sorts of things that are bundled together uh, within that uh, term. Now, as we go back now to the Old Testament, still under this heading, John chapter 1 and verse 14, as it were, this revelation of God's glory in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, picks up all sorts of hints that are given to us uh, in the book of Exodus and in the section of Exodus uh, marked by Exodus 33, verse 18, to chapter 34 and verse 7. You'll remember that uh, Moses said to the Lord, now show me your glory. And that is what happens in those uh, following verses. We see on the one hand that uh, as God reveals his glory, he, is, he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so when we get to chapter 34 and verse 6, uh, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. And uh, we see that he maintains love to thousands. He forgives wickedness. So God reveals his compassion, his grace, his abounding love. He is full of grace. In that picture, uh, the way he describes himself, his self-revelation in Exodus 34. But also at the same time, God reveals uh, his truth his faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to his character in the way that he deals with sin. Because that quotation in 34 verses 6 and 7 of the book of Exodus also speaks about the fact that uh, he abounds in faithfulness, faithfulness to his character, to his promises, to his name. Uh, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So, uh, it's not just that God is full of grace, but also we see that, uh, uh, that sin will be dealt with. Yes, sometimes it will be forgiven, 
But also we see that sin will be punished, that there is justice. Whatever happens, uh, he's not going to turn a blind eye to to sin. Sin will be dealt with. He is going to be faithful to his character all the way through. And so we see these two aspects, and of course there will be other aspects as well. It's very uh, nuanced and full passage. But nevertheless, we see that both sides of that equation are brought together, as it were, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, with that revelation of the glory of the Father, in the revelation of the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. So, for example, uh, just following the lead in John's Gospel, we come to uh, John chapter 8 and the story of the woman caught in adultery, verses 1 to 11, and we have those uh, phrase at the end, Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Full of grace, not condemning, but also full of truth. That there is that sense of justice, the importance of, uh, of leaving sin behind. It's brought together in our Lord Jesus Christ, and especially uh, at the cross, where, uh, as the song says, where wrath and mercy meet all brought together where Christ's true glory is seen. So that is going to be our second point. And we are building towards uh, looking through this important subject of common grace. But our second point is that uh, we've now seen uh, Christ's glory, his character, revealed in his grace and his truth. And therefore, it would not be surprising, may I put it to you like this, it would not be surprising if we see aspects of Christ's glory, aspects of his character, as it were, overflowing into this doctrine of common grace. So, just to, uh, 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 just to review where we've come. We've looked at the person of Christ and we've recognised that common grace comes from uh, Christ himself. Then we've uh, looked and we've seen that the character of Christ as full of grace and truth uh, will, uh, as it were, will lead to that expectation that those will be, as it were, handles to help us grasp something of this doctrine of common grace. So let's now look at our third heading. So I hope you're following me so far. Our third heading Christ's character is now revealed in common grace. And uh, in this third heading, we'll look at uh, both parts. So in exercising God's grace, he pours out his goodness that is not necessarily deserved at all on his creation and on mankind. So for example the way that God pours out his uh, goodness in creation. Uh, Listen to these words in Psalm 104. And notice almost the, the joy of the psalmist as he recounts these things about God's uh, goodness. Uh, 
He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle. You see, this is God in his goodness. He's watering the earth. He's tending it like a garden. He's uh, He's satisfying things here. He's enabling these things to happen. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth and wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread that sustains his heart. Is that just for believers? No, it's it's for everybody within within his creation. Yes, the trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. And so it goes on, um, verse 24, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, perhaps the whale, which you formed to frolic there. It's a a wonderful picture of God's goodness in creation. It goes on, verse 27, these all look to you. So all, all the animals within the, uh, 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 the earth, they all look to you, the Lord God, to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. So it's just a a wonderful description of the way in which uh, uh, the psalmist celebrates God's goodness within the world. So uh, we can uh, enjoy looking at the world around us. Yes, of course, it's, it's fallen, we've spoiled it in all sorts of ways. But, but even so, we, we look at it and we see God's goodness revealed, his grace, his, his overflowing goodness within our world. And he pours out his goodness uh, on mankind. And again, this is uh, on mankind generally. So, for example, we turn to uh, Psalm 145. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. Words, of course, that come from originally Exodus 34. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And again, the the psalmist is not just thinking of uh, uh, believers there. Uh, The Lord is faithful to all his promises, loving towards all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food at the proper time. Echoes of Psalm 104. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. So we just remind ourselves there of uh, God's goodness on creation generally and also on mankind. And again, we could uh, uh, rehearse that verse we looked at earlier, Acts 14, verse 17. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in the seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. But just a, a couple of notes before we move to, uh, to see the other side of the coin. The exercise of common grace in this way helps us, helps people to see God's love and his kindness. So the language of common grace prepares people to learn the vocabulary of saving grace. 
See, that is what is happening in Acts chapter 14, as the Apostle Paul tells these, uh, these unbelieving Gentiles uh, in uh, Asia Minor. He tells them about God's kindness before going on later to, to preach the gospel to them about his kindness specifically in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So common grace prepares us to learn the vocabulary of saving grace. And it also indeed models how we as Christians are to live as believers uh, in the world. As God has uh, uh, compassion on all he has made, as he has acted with great benevolence and kindness, so there is within the New Testament that right sense of uh, the Christian being concerned not just for those around them, but for, for those right across the world, a concern for uh, uh, those who are uh, going through difficult days. Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Yes, he will then say, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. But he has said, let us do good to all, just like our Heavenly Father, doing good to all. So that's uh, under this third heading. We see here, just on the one hand, the way that God pours out his goodness. But also we see that uh, he pours out, as it were, his truth, his justice, his faithfulness. Yes, he is uh, slow to anger, but nevertheless, this is also an aspect of his character and part of his common grace. Uh, We might well have expected that after the fall, Well, that would be the end of the matter, that uh, uh, God would step in and uh, there would be instant judgment and that would be the very end of the story to stop uh, sin spreading. But notice, just in the early chapters of uh, Genesis, the way that uh, Cain is punished and yet there is a a mark given to him to protect him. We see that uh, 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 the creation comes through the, uh, the flood in Noah's day, and yet there is a, another mark, the, the sign of the rainbow that uh, God will not uh, destroy. Uh, we see at uh, Babel, the, uh, the tower that God uh, brings down, and yet uh, there is the sign of uh, many languages that are, as the uh, people are dispersed across the world to prevent uh, people rising up. And, uh, and challenging God uh, again. We see that in all sorts of ways, God is disciplining, God is judging, God is restraining evil, but he is not bringing a, a complete end yet. Yes, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ will come uh, at the very end. But we see all the way through the biblical narrative, the way that God is, uh, as it were, uh, over non-Christians, over his creation. God is acting with justice and truth. He is uh, restraining his hand sometimes, uh, but he has his purposes which he is working out. He is full of grace, but he is also full of truth. You can't get round uh, his truth and his faithfulness to his name. And so again, just a, a couple of notes. The exercise of common grace in this way, actually gives space and room 
for the gospel of saving grace to be planted. It is the fact that God is disciplining throughout history and that he is patient and slow to anger that still enables us to be preserved from that judgment such that there is the opportunity for us to hear the gospel of saving grace. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And it models how we are to live as Christians in the world. There will also be that concern amongst ourselves as believers for truth and justice and restraint and discipline as we find our own lives modelled by the Spirit of God on what is happening within the, uh, uh, the, the Godhead uh, itself. So there is our, our third point, that common grace, both in terms of his benevolence and love that is undeserved, as well as his justice, his restraint of sin sometimes, his punishment of sin at other times, his faithfulness to his name, his truth, both those flow out all the way through history, right across the world, on creation and on all mankind. But let's now move to our fourth heading. And the fourth heading concerns the vehicles of common grace. The vehicles of common grace. Because the question is, how does God exercise his common grace? And uh, often he does this directly. He just does it without any particular means. So, for example, this is what we hear in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 6. Abraham with uh, uh, the incident with uh, Abimelech. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. That is uh, God speaking to Abimelech. He uh, is restraining, he's keeping somebody from evil. Or, for example, we read uh, in Psalm 65, Verses 9, and 11, 9 to 11. Again, God uh, acting directly. The psalmist says, you care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with corn, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. And we could go through many, many parts of the Bible and we simply see uh, God, who is the sovereign one overall, acting as he pleases, according to his good pleasure, acting according to his grace, uh, acting in faithfulness to his name, acting towards his justice and just doing it as he wishes. Yet often, God chooses to exercise uh, common grace through various means. And there are three that I especially want to highlight, and these are often mentioned in any uh, uh, description of the doctrine of common grace. Conscience, family, and the state. Our conscience. Since 
male and female, since man is made in the very image of God, although fallen, nevertheless it would not be surprising that our conscience, yes, though that is fallen as well, will often act according to grace and truth. Uh, We will find unbelievers prompted to exercise love and compassion and benevolence as they act according to their conscience, fallen though it may be. Uh, And we will often see, uh, again, uh, people who are not Christians holding back from sin, exercising self-restraint, or being convicted uh, of having acted uh, uh, in, uh, when they've done something that is uh, not right, convicted by their conscience. The conscience is a means by which God's common grace is exercised because the conscience itself uh, uh, enables people to act according to grace, enables people to have some inkling of God's justice. Again, we see it in terms of the family. Since male and female together reflect the very image of the relations within the Godhead in Genesis 1 and verse 26, again, it would be not surprising that families are a place where uh, love and goodness are often revealed. In terms of relationships, uh, there are places where truth and justice and discipline may also be revealed as much as in uh, non-Christian households. Or again, when we come to the state, again, it may be, certainly not always, but may be a vehicle for channeling God's grace. So, for example... Uh, we read uh, in two very significant passages relating to the state in the New Testament, in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, two aspects of the role of the state when it's working as it should be. I'll read both passages to us. Romans 13 and verses 3 and 4. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, literally God's minister, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Interesting, isn't it? Two sides. One side is to commend goodness. And the other side of the role of the state uh, is to discipline and bring justice The state, when it's working properly, is to be an agent of uh, uh, ministering grace and truth. Uh, Or again, in 1 Peter 2 and verses 13 and 14, Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether the king as the supreme authority or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 
So again, Peter is on the same lines as the Apostle Paul. The twin function of the state, when it's working as it should, uh, is to be an agent of God's common grace within the world. That people will, as it were, will be able to taste of uh, uh, God's goodness, will be able to see God's justice being dispensed, full of grace and truth. And so, when we see the state acting in those ways, it is acting in line. Yes, of course, in all sorts of fallen ways, because uh, the state itself is comprised of uh, institutions that, as it were, have fallen, certainly of individuals who make up those institutions who have fallen. But uh, nevertheless, when it's working as it should, they are acting in line with God's character. And so life in this world, even for the unbeliever, can be very good in all sorts of ways when the state does its job, when you grow up in a family doing its job, and you and others around you are acting according to a clear conscience rather than the values around them or the desires that flow from within. And all of these are good gifts that come from our Lord Jesus Christ and are not to be despised. Yes, of course, mankind is still steeped in sin and that sin will need to be dealt with. But let us not despise these good things that God has given us and the vehicles with which he so often gives these things, conscience, the family and state. So that is our fourth point, that uh, generally... God, our Lord Jesus Christ, works through means, and especially in this area of common grace. Well, we come now to our fifth heading. I hope you're still with me. Fifth heading, working with common grace. So now, working with common grace. So if this is how God acts, if this is how Christ acts, and and these are the means he often uses as Christians... Well, surely we should do all that we can to preserve and promote these means of common grace so that people can taste something of God's grace and his truth, God's goodness and his justice. Because it uh, it will enable people to experience, yes, more of these things and because also... My contention, which we'll come to later, it will prepare people to hear the gospel of God's saving grace. So again, we're going to uh, uh, split this fifth heading uh, into uh, three subpoints as we look at conscience, the family and the state. Uh, we should be those who seek to uphold the role of conscience. Uh, it is always dangerous to act against it. If we act against our conscience, uh, it will either lead to evil being unrestrained or else it will lead to us being far too harsh in our dealings. Uh, Either there will be no justice or there will be uh, uh, such a a heavy-handedness that everything will be squashed. Uh, If uh, there is no conscience, no room for conscience, uh, and if conscience is seared, if conscience is uh, uh, eventually overridden, 
then eventually people will be less able to see their sinfulness. And eventually, or they will see, uh, if they cannot see their sin, uh, they will not see the need for a saviour. Therefore, we will want to help people to be sensitive to their conscience. Uh, We will want to express concern when conscience is overridden in society or where people are forced to act against their conscience. Uh, Recently, uh, just on one of the websites, I was uh, seeing that uh, in the States there is something that has recently emerged called the Manhattan Declaration. And it was speaking about the importance of uh, preserving conscience. Uh, The whole area of uh, seeking to campaign for religious liberty uh, links in with uh, with all of this as well. So uh, we should be those seeking to uphold conscience. Uh, Secondly, under this fifth heading, we should seek to uphold the family as designed and created by the triune God. Uh, again, it is dangerous for, the, for society uh, to see it at uh, the family disintegrate. Uh, it's dangerous morally, uh, economically, in every uh, other way. And those who grow up either with no family or with, uh, uh, for example, with uh, no father, well, they will be far less able to understand such things as the love of God, our Heavenly Father. And therefore, we will want to work to defend and uphold the family as the place where God's common grace is received and where something of the image of God is glimpsed in the relations of the Trinity uh, when uh, the family functions as it should. And then thirdly, under this heading, we should seek to uphold the state in its God-ordained purpose. Again, it is dangerous when the state turns from being a Romans 13 state to being a Revelation 13 state. Dangerous for everyone. Uh, When uh, the state is not judging evil and restraining crime, well, people are far less able to understand why uh, God is and must be the judge if those uh, things just do not come under uh, in in their thinking. Uh, Therefore, we will want to uphold the state and its institutions, calling the state and its institutions to fulfil God's purposes in passages that we read earlier, uh, such as Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, enabling those basic rhythms of God's kindness and his justice to be dispensed within the wider society such that there is uh, provision for care as well as proper justice. And doing these things pleases God. We're going to spend uh, the remaining part of our time just in one book of the Bible, in 1 Timothy. Uh, In 1 Timothy chapter 4, this is what uh, Paul says about conscience. He says, uh, just jumping into the text at verse 2, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving 
by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. You see, it is displeasing to God when consciences are seared and we act uh, against conscience or where consciences are now unresponsive to God's generous gifts within the world. So God is therefore the corollary. He is pleased when our our conscience uh, recognises God's generosity within the world and recognises his justice. Uh, Or again, the family. This is what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verses 3 and 4. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and godparents, for this is pleasing to God. Interesting, isn't it? Pleasing to God with this uh, woman, not just, as it were, becoming super spiritual. And that is the, uh, the, the, perhaps the, the heresy behind all of these things in 1 Timothy. Uh, the uh, people being super spiritual and therefore uh, depriving themselves of food or marriage or whatever. Paul says no. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the person who wants to, uh, uh, as it were, go into some sort of uh, uh, ministry as a widow, uh, uh, Paul says no, no, care for your family. Conscience, family. And then 1 Timothy 2 and verses 1 to 3. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour. Pleasing that we pray, perhaps, or pleasing that the state functions in such a way that people can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Pleasing that the, God, that the state is acting uh, in those sorts of ways. You see, Paul is concerned that these vehicles of common grace are upheld, that people are praying for the state, that people are, are committed to uh, the family, that people are, are not uh, searing their conscience. These things that, as it were, minister common grace uh, to the Christian and to the world are things that we need to preserve in 1 Timothy. Conscience, family and the state. And so that is our, our fifth heading. Working in these three areas is a means of enabling many to experience God's common grace. Now we come to our sixth And final heading in this lecture. And that is the link between common grace and saving grace. The link between common grace and saving grace. And we see it in that passage that I've just quoted from in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Because the prayer for the leaders is for uh, people to experience common grace. So verse 1, I urge that request, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone, kings and all those in authority. They're not necessarily Christians. Well, what is the prayer? Well, that, uh, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
So it's a prayer that uh, evil will be restrained within society such that we can live those uh, peaceful and quiet lives. Uh, And it is a prayer that uh, uh, God's goodness would be uh, experienced within that society, that people can live lives of godliness and holiness flowing out uh, to the society around. So it is a prayer, as it were, for common grace to come through the vehicle uh, of the state. But it doesn't end there. Since the call to pray for people to experience common grace within and through the state is intimately connected with God's desire for all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, within what is being said here in 1 Timothy, common grace, according to Paul, prepares people to hear the gospel of saving grace. When all the building blocks of common grace are seen and experienced, in many, many cases, and of course there'll be exceptions, it will often be that uh, it will be more productive, enabling the gospel of grace to go forward in all sorts of ways. And therefore I would suggest that uh, it is important, for example, for the Christian Institute, to view itself at the heart of God's purposes for the world as it works to be a vehicle to uh, enable God's common grace to be seen, appreciated and tasted throughout our society uh, as uh, these areas of conscience and family and state are, uh, uh, that were, where there are campaigns and where there are, are ways in which to enable those things to flourish as God intended within our society. But in doing so, it is part of the wider work that Paul envisages here in 1 Timothy 2 of enabling people to receive the gospel of saving grace within our world. We won't put any dividers up between these two things, but they are to flow from one to the other, that as we are seeking under God to see a place where conscience and family and the state are acting as they should, in so many ways we will be praying that God's saving grace will also be appreciated as they see these good things Uh, coming from God, from the Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. So let's just, as we close, recap those six building blocks, if you like. All grace comes from the Godhead, comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, our Lord Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. And therefore, third point, common grace is that doctrine which shows us in all sorts of ways his grace and truth, his love, his justice being revealed across the world in all sorts of ways. Point four, it it is especially seen in the areas of conscience and family and state where we see both grace and truth, love and justice being ministered or administered. Uh, Point five, which means that uh, we are called 
to work to uphold these means of grace within uh, God's world. And we do this point six, point six, for the sake of the world generally, but indeed for the sake of the world hearing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that those tastes of God's grace and truth will finally be satisfied when they drink of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and when they taste of the fullness of that grace and truth that comes from him, that is appropriated as people come to the very heart of the Christian faith, to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there they meet the one who has been giving them these gifts all the way through their life. And there they will taste and see and know the full goodness of the Lord Jesus. So I hope that that has helped us to see where, as it were, our jigsaw piece fits within the the broader picture of uh, the scriptures and within the broader understanding of Christian doctrine. Now, I'm certainly... uh, prepared in one sense to answer questions, although I guess it's such a big subject there might be all sorts of things where I'll be flailing around. But I trust that that will give us a framework to think and to see how our actions can be involved uh, in this whole area. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Angus. I just noticed, um, I was particularly interested in what you had to say at the end about... um, common grace and saving grace um, something I, I really still don't understand um, reading Romans one, chapter 1 and 2 uh, God seems to be angry with mankind because they haven't really responded to his common grace and they become full of evil and he hands them over to their uh, perversions basically um, but from what I know of reformed theology an um, uns, uh, unsaved man is, like you said at the start, incapable of um, responding to God and is totally depraved and in his very nature is a God-hater and will automatically do um, uh, rebel against God. So I, don't, I still don't understand quite how God is is um, angry with people for not responding to common grace when they aren't um, uh, saved. It, it, it is the uh, uh, it's an important issue. Yes, of course, God's uh, in Romans one, God's wrath uh, is being poured out. Uh, uh, Romans one verse eighteen on those who suppress the truth by their wickedness, and uh, uh, so they're they're turning away from God. And, and so God, uh, God is angry with, uh, with people's behavior, and he hands them over. Uh, and, yet, uh, and yet his, uh, uh, his justice of his final judgment is delayed, and yet he is uh, constantly giving good things to sustain that person's physical life. Um, and uh, they are able to taste all sorts of things of God's goodness from, for example, the, uh, uh, the state uh, in Romans 13. Uh, and I think it's one of these things where we, we have to, uh, it, 
you know, we, we, we're just trying to explore the doctrine of common grace, but we've got to recognise that, um, you know, we've got to have a, a robust view of, of man's sinfulness and the fall at the same time. So it's not as if uh, man is sort of somehow, and I hope I haven't given this impression, is somehow sort of uh, neutral uh, or in some sort of state of neutrality with God. No, God is uh, utterly displeased uh, and against our sin. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, perhaps the example of um, uh, uh, ourselves with a, uh, uh, as parents with our children, where there would be uh, uh, anger about, uh, about something that has happened, and yet also uh, a concern uh, for that, uh, that child. Uh, and I guess those two things are operating all at the same time. Um, now, I hope I didn't sort of muddy the waters there because, I mean, I think these are the sorts of issues that, uh, that, that for example, that denomination that I talked about earlier uh, sort of split over, just finding room for common grace, recognising man's total depravity, uh, recognising the gospel of saving grace, but somehow in the middle, the Bible seems to, to talk of God as the creator as well, dispensing good things, even to those who have turned against him and uh, are uh, resisting him in all sorts of ways. God's patience uh, is, uh, is there, slow to anger, um, giving room for people to, uh, uh, to find, we pray and trust, saving grace. Sorry, I don't know if that's helped further, but uh, thrown up other questions, perhaps. Just taking a little further, the, uh, the, the linkage between the common grace and saving grace. I was thinking of Elijah and King Ahab, and there the, uh, the state was enjoying good times, it was enjoying the, the good things of common grace, mm-hmm. uh, and yet there was little sign of the people being drawn towards God. Mm-hmm. Uh, then God removed the reins, and you could say, well, there wasn't much. It was the removal of common grace that then... Uh, allowed, I suppose, or prepared people for when Elijah came back and, and asked for a test uh, and people were then ready to have a test between Baal and God and were, were ready to turn on Baal, which after all, had, uh, you know, they'd followed him for seven years and, uh, and, and, and had a terrible time. Uh, I wonder whether that's a sort of a, a further uh, linkage between common grace and saving grace. Uh, yes, I mean, I, I mean, certainly that there are times when... Uh, uh, yes, where, where uh, the, the, yes, there will be many times when a, a state has acted in uh, in, in terrible ways, uh, and yet where God, in His mercy, has enabled revival to happen, and uh, you know, and the church has blossomed in all sorts of ways, and many have been saved by Christ, and in a sense, there's been no necessary sort of preparation. Uh, by uh, common grace, and, and yet also there have been many times I think in uh, in history where you know where those building blocks are there, uh, and when Christians have been involved in society in all sorts of ways, it has just enabled the you know the work of the gospel to to flourish. And, and as I say, I'm just trying to base it on what Paul is saying in one Timothy two. Um, you know, why does he ask for? Uh, Prayer for those for those leaders. Um, it's just a you know a good thing to do that 
we could live in that sort of stable society, enjoying the fruits of God's uh, common grace, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as it were, a, a, a sort of environment where the, the gospel can go forward apace. Uh, that, that seems to be the, uh, uh, the, you know, what Paul is saying there. So I, I'm sure that there's many, many exceptions. Um, but as I say, I, I was trying to sort of say it at the end, that you know, when people do come to know our Lord Jesus Christ, um, often it will have been that they've tasted various other things as unbelievers within the world. Uh, and uh, eventually when they come to Christ that they will be able to acknowledge, ah, that, that's, God was there, he was working there, he, he gave me that, he gave me this, so that, that there were links. Yeah. So, um, it's along the same sort of lines, but um, it was a very encouraging picture, I thought, that you gave at the end, um, and, and again there of kind of when someone does come to uh, accept Jesus as their personal savior, that they've seen the common grace benefits through their life. But how do you think that personally we can um, use the, those common grace blessings that people are experiencing to draw them to God? I, I guess it's partly uh, uh, helping people to, uh, uh, to see that, that these are, are blessings that, that actually come from God. That, that we, live, we, we don't just live in a world where um, you know, we're just a, a bundle of atoms and uh, uh, we're, we're just... Um, uh, you know, a, a chance selection, and that perhaps our our, our spouse is just a, you know a, a random selection of atoms as well, and that uh, these uh, you know the food on the plate, I mean, you know, the, everything is sort of meaningless in that sort of situation. We, we want to be able to to say to uh, the um, uh, you know as we as we look at the uh, uh, that the wonder of creation around us. Um, yeah, God made it, and 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 build from uh, from there. Certainly, from time to time, we've done uh, things in our church where, really, just you know, it, it's not a full sort of gospel uh, event, but it's helping people we have, we trust uh, to just uh, recognise that these good gifts they they come from from God. He is the the good giver, the the creator. Because, uh, and I guess it's one of those things that we're in danger of losing with, the, you know, the whole sort of, you know, Richard Dawkins stuff and everything. Uh, no creator at all. It, it is just a, a random selection. We want to, you know, persuade people, know these good things that you're enjoying, you know, the health that you've enjoyed, that that was a gift of God, not, not just the way things were, that that food that you're enjoying, that, that God gave you that helping people to, to get a, a much more robust and fuller view of, uh, of God the Creator. Uh, I think that does prepare and help people to, uh, uh, to see these things. Alice and my wife and I were with uh, two dear friends last week, and they're happy to talk about the Gospel and how to get that bridge between all the good things in creation, you know, we happened to be in the Lake District and we had three wonderful walks, believe it or not, you know. And there we were enjoying God's creation. And they were enjoying what they were doing, but didn't quite see it in those terms. And how you bridge that, that gap, I don't know whether there's anything you can say about that. Perhaps you said it all already, Andy. 
Yes, I'm not sure that I can uh, uh, say much more, but I think it is one of those uh, things, again, going back to the original question, that, you know, because of the fall, everything is, uh, uh, is marred and, uh, you know, we, we don't, we're blind to these uh, good gifts that uh, uh, were spiritually dead so that we, uh, you know, we, we can't taste them as such necessarily. We need those eyes to be opened. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, God is often able to, uh, you know, to, to do that and enabling us to, uh, some people, just to have that sense, yes, these things God has given me. If he's there, he's, he has given me a, a good life. There's lots of good, oh, there's been sorrow as well, but there's been good things. And I, I think it's, it's trying then to, uh, you know, just to, to have a, a proper framework for the gospel that, um, as I say, that, that really does justice to where we started, the fact that he is creator as well as redeemer, that we're not just talking about redemption, but creation as well as redemption. Um, yeah, I, I mean, these are difficult things, and we pray for God to open blind eyes and breathe new life. But um, uh, as we, you know, work in society, uh, you know, constantly we need to recognize that, uh, you know, if God withheld his hand, everything, you know, the lights go out completely <laughs> on everything, uh, and, uh, and his common grace sustains it. Why? Why should he do this? to such a rebellious people. Why should he do that? Well, only his own goodness that he decides to do that. And somehow we, we want to preserve that and tell people about that in order that ultimately they will be brought further along to recognize their sin, that they have been deeply ungrateful for God's goodness all through the years, uh, and that they might turn to a, a loving saviour. Isn't that uh, one of the key points where you talked about ingratitude there? Mm. It's one of the first sins Can mentioned. Can you hear this? Mm. Can you speak up a bit, please? Mm. Ingratitude. <laughs> <laughs> one of the first sins mentioned in Rome, the list in Romans, mm. which is the first sin, isn't it, really? Yeah. Is ingratitude mm. to God for all that he has given. So it's actually a very serious matter mm. if people... Uh, are not grateful for all that God has done in mm. creation for them. Yeah. And that he is visible. He can be... It's sufficient to condemn someone. It's not sufficient to save them. Mm. But that just that act of ingratitude is actually sufficient for condemnation. And we're all, by that measure, sinners. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, interestingly, in the, the 1 Timothy 4 passage... Again, it's, um, uh, it's ingratitude for those good gifts, whether it's of, uh, of food or, or whatever. Um, yeah, we, we want to be those who are grateful. Uh, and we want to be you know, uh, using those gifts that God has given to us, thanking him for them. But so often it's met with ingratitude and, uh, or rejection uh, of those gifts. But nevertheless, he, he keeps giving and giving in all sorts of ways. You mentioned the state. Mm. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, what, is it le- what is legitimate for Christians in positions of authority? 
to say to non-Christians about common grace. And in particular, I'm thinking about Christian teachers in state schools and the approach that they might take with regard to common grace and what they communicate about common grace to non-Christian children from non-Christian homes. Um, I'm aware with a headmaster behind me that uh, uh, not easy to, uh, to answer that. Um, yes, I'm not quite sure exactly how to answer that. I mean, I, I think... Um, I mean, part of my conversion, uh, I would have to say, uh, you know, one of the stepping stones was a uh, teacher who he, he taught English when I was sort of 14, 15. I knew there, were, there was something different uh, about him. He was a Christian in a way that, that I wasn't, although I would have called myself a Christian. Uh, he was somebody who... Uh, uh, he, he, enjoyed life to the full. He, he delighted uh, in those things. He, uh, uh, you know, there was a delight in his subject. There was a delight in, uh, for him, uh, athletics and in us sort of doing well in athletics and everything else. Uh, he enjoyed life. And uh, certainly, and obviously this is many years ago, um, I, not all the time at all, but from time to time, uh, he would... Uh, be prepared to articulate that and, and say uh, that uh, he was so grateful to, to God for you know, this or for that. Um, and he would uh, uh, say something about, or, you know, I was praying about that actually or something. And so in various ways he was communicating to us something about uh, uh, just his, his delight in God and, and God's you know, delight. So I'm sure that... You know, that's, that's possible. Um, I, I guess that, that there are certainly issues in terms of uh, uh, how wise, how appropriate it is to, to speak in certain situations where we have permission to do that and where, where it's unwise. And it may be that uh, folk like John and others have, uh, have greater wisdom on those sorts of things. But certainly that was my experience, that communicated to me something. Didn't, didn't get me uh, saved at that point, but it was certainly a, a stepping stone for me, seeing his delight in, uh, in God's goodness. Well, if, if you were teaching a subject, if you're talking about, you could be... Uh, um, there could be wonderful art that can bring glory to God, or wonderful literature that can be, can be Philippians 4 verse 8 whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent um, these things are, are actually celebrating God's common grace aren't they and that's what all teachers should be doing all of the time uh, in mathematics or uh, whatever celebrating beauty and uh, um, distinguishing beauty from ugliness I suppose what, what lay behind the question uh, was whether uh, teachers should limit themselves, whether Christian teachers uh, or indeed head teachers should limit themselves to giving a reason for the hope that they have, or whether they should, whether it's legitimate to go further 
and to declare truth rather than simply uh, a personal perspective or experience in a more postmodern kind of fashion. Um, one of the things that's come out tonight is talking about recognising the goodness around us. Colin was talking about recognising truth and beauty. And we do that not only in the, the, kind of the natural created world, but we do it in man-made objects as well. We see God's common grace. How as Christians do we do that, given that so often <clears throat> what is good and what is bad or what is fallen is mixed together? You think of um, the arts or, or you know, films or music. There's good elements, but there can be horribly bad elements as well. How do we get the balance right there? Because there can be a tendency to condemn everything and say it's all wrong and almost reject culture altogether. And then there's the tendency to absorb everything and say, just, just comment on what's good. How, how as Christians can we engage with culture explicitly talking about common grace and recognising good things while also mm. stating what's bad? Well, I guess it is just reminding ourselves, again, just uh, uh, the reminder of our fallenness and, and the doctrine of sin, really, that uh, uh, we can have something which is, uh, which is designed, which is, uh, uh, shows uh, the, the capacity that God has put within us for ordering, for beauty, for, uh, you know, uh, the means of helping many others. But, but those same... Th- uh, that those same technologies can be used for mass destruction or whatever. Well, why? Well, because of our fallenness, because of our our sin. And so you're absolutely right, it is just those things blended together uh, and that we need somehow to distinguish between them. Uh, But the very fact that a technology can be used for uh, uh, saving many lives but also destroying many lives, um, you know, that shows that... that, um, uh, you know God's goodness on the one hand, but also our our, our sinfulness, and I, and I guess we're we're needing just to, to highlight both of those things at the same time, but but that will be right across the uh, uh, the board. So I, I guess that's how I'd respond to that.